Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out www.nowhearthis.biz. Be sure to sign up for the email newsletter there, which is quick and easy. All that's required is an email address. We are coming to you from Crystal Blue Sound Studios near Tampa, Florida. Check them out on the web at www.cbpro, as in Crystal Blue Productions, cbpro.net. Be sure you are subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends to do so as well. We are thrilled to be on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. Lots of great guests on Now Hear This Entertainment, or as I'm taking to calling it, NHTE. Joining me today here in the studio, my guest was a longtime trumpeter and music educator, and he now does comedy in the Sarasota, Bradenton, Florida area. He has a long and impressive list of credits, including top names that he worked with over the years. His autobiography, Loved Being Here With You, features a foreword by the legendary Quincy Jones. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Ron Modell. Thanks, Bruce. It's wonderful to be here with you. Well, first and foremost, uh, thanks for the making, making the drive up here today. I, I appreciate you coming into the studio for this. Well, I told everybody I was coming to Dover, and their immediate reactions was, why are you going to Delaware? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Ron, wow. As I was reading your book, I felt like I should have been making notes along the way of topics to bring up, but there are so many interesting stories in there that I would practically be telling my listeners your whole book. So, you know, sales wouldn't pick up because I'd be giving your whole story away. Wow. You, you have had some kind of career. You know, it, if it wasn't for my beautiful wife, Kathy, who one day said to me, you have got to put this down. It's got to be written if only I read it and your children, because you've had the most incredible life. And I had never really stopped to think about that. But, you know, the minute she said that to me, I had a flashback of just getting out of high school. I was one month past my 18th birthday on a big national tour with a great actress, authoress named Cornelia Otis Skinner. And we were in Los Angeles playing at the Biltmore Theater. And the next morning, I found myself on the soundstage at Paramount Studios, standing right next to Bob Hope, Rosemary Clooney, and Arlene Dahl as they were watching dailies of what they had just uh, done. And my life seems to have gone like that. Amazing, amazing. Uh, let's start first by having you tell the listeners, you know, obviously, the, the, the podcast is generally about music, um, so... Although we're going to get into a few different areas today, I want to start first by having you tell the listeners about what you called the most difficult day of your life, which was when you decided you had just played the trumpet for the last time. Take us through your mindset at that time. Well, I think it was six or nine months before I made the decision that since the very first concert I ever gave in DeKalb, Illinois, was July 4th, 1969, that was after leaving my post as principal trumpet in the Dallas Symphony, that I had played 65 years, mm. and that on July 4th, 1997, which would have been my 38th consecutive year to appear as soloist on the summer series that the DeKalb Municipal Band puts on, that would be a good place to hang it up. And so... Uh, it really was, for one reason mainly, 
And that was because when you've played at a certain level during your lifetime, a certain level of technical, you know, and, and musical achievements, you don't want to go below that line. And, and I found that things that had normally been ABC became XYZ. Mm. And I was going to have to devote a lot more time to getting my chops to, be, to the place where I would be confident and comfortable walking in front of an audience. And at age 72, my wife had introduced me to the game of golf at <laughs> 65, and uh, I felt like, uh, you know, enough is enough. I, I, I gave my 65 years. I accomplished everything I wanted to with the exception of one thing, which was my fault. And that was I never learned how to improvise on the trumpet. I was a lead trumpet player. I was, always played the lead part and was not willing to put in the devotion and dedication and study that you need to become an accomplished jazz improvisationalist. But I did read in your book that there were a time or two that you tried to cheat. <laughs> yes. Yes. I you know, got stuck in situations where all of a sudden doing a show with a dancer-singer who would say to me, come up on stage with me and let's, let's do a blues. And then I just took from the wonderful memories I, I had of the late Clark Terry, who just passed away in the last week or two, the little riffs that he had taught me, but mm-hmm. it wasn't really improvising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, getting back to, to you playing for the last time, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the logical follow-up question, which is how many times have you been asked to, to you know come out of retirement or, oh, just make an exception, just play one song or just play one time? Well, I think the first year there was some of that, but... You know, people got to realize immediately that I was very, very sincere about I I played enough. And believe it or not, that was July 4th, 2007. I have never played another note on the trumpet, and I don't even own a trumpet. No kidding. I do not. Wow. Wow. That's that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I, I You know, I, I thought maybe you'd say, you know, around the house a little bit here and there when it's just me and my wife, but but that's about it. That's That's amazing. Oh. No, it was the same reason, Bruce. Uh, Again, if I was going to play, I wanted to play at the level that I was used to playing at, and that's not going to happen unless you put the time in. Well, we're obviously going to cover a lot of ground here today, but the first story I want you to tell is about your connection to Quincy Jones, being that I mentioned in the intro that he wrote the foreword for your book. There's an old adage, you got to be at the right place at the right time, and We were scheduled to take the Northern Illinois University Jazz Ensemble that summer as part of a two-week Swiss tour to conclude at the Montreux Jazz Festival, still the most prestigious jazz festival. And uh, the head of that festival, the late Claude Nobbs, had made a rule that no college band would ever be permitted to play in the main venue, Stravinsky Hall. Excuse me. Um, all of a sudden, Claude Nobbs, who had set up a program for July 19th of 1996 as a tribute of Quincy Jones' 50 Years in Music. It was a retrospective of everything he had written for TV and everything, Michael Jackson, thought that he had hired the number one big band in Europe, which is the WDR band in Cologne, Germany, <coughs> Excuse me, and found out a month before that half that band was out touring with Phil Collins and would not be able to make the July 19th. The very same day that he found that out, he had gotten a fax 
from Leon Breeden, who was the head of jazz studies at North Texas State and was the most revered college professor in that area. He was the one that broke ground for all of us. And that fact said, Dear Claude, I understand the Northern Illinois University Jazz Ensemble with Ron Modella coming. If any band ever deserved to play in Stravinsky Hall, this is the band. So here he was, all of a sudden, without a big band to back up Phil Collins and uh, um, Shaka Khan and Patty Austin and Toots Thielman. He took that fax and immediately faxed it to Quincy Jones in L.A. And Quincy immediately faxed him back and said, if Leon Breeden thinks that highly of that band, get him. Wow. Wow. So I got a fax the next day, you know, saying, would you come and could you do it? And of course, I said immediately, yes. Fantastic. Wow. That's that's terrific. And, you know, I I was going to ask you, um, you know, because I do feel that's another big name. That that would resonate with my listeners. I, w- I was going to to ask you to 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 talk about having worked with uh, with Phil Collins. Well, Phil was one of the many soloists on that program, and he just fell in love with my band and the enthusiasm. You know, you can take the best band in L.A. or New York or Chicago, any of the big cities, and they will play great every time you sit them down. Because that's their job. But Louis Belson and Quincy Jones, just two of the many names I can tell you, Clark Terry, James Moody, all the soloists that we had come to Northern, walked away telling me that as marvelous as the pros are, the kids get a certain kind of enthusiasm that rubs off on them and just makes them want to play again. Because, you know, when you go in to do your job, like the big bands do, like Gordon Goodwin and what a great band in L.A. You come in, you play. There'll be certain nights when you'll be very, very inspired and the band will all of a sudden be on another plateau. But mainly, you come in and you play your job just like we're doing now, you know, doing something. My kids, for some reason, always were eager, enthusiastic, excited, so that every time Quincy came in to rehearse and our rehearsal schedule was Tuesday, six hours, Wednesday, seven hours, Thursday, nine hours. And on the day of the performance, the students were on stage from 1030 in the morning till 1 a.m. Mm. with just one break for dinner. Mm. So it was a matter of um, everything coming together. And what a remembrance those kids have for and the rest how, of their life. And how well, and now he's he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame amongst a, a long list of other accolades that he's received. And I think it's great that you're pointing out, that I want to make sure the listeners understand, this was not some chance, one-time opportunity where, oh, he all he did was shake Quincy Jones' hands. I mean, listeners, when you when you buy Ron's book, you'll see pictures in there that show that these were two guys that really know each other and, and are, are actual friends. So thank you for, for going to the lengths that you did. And, and then Phil Collins, uh, what year was that? That was 96. Now, in 97, and my wife Kathy still taunts me about erasing this phone message. Uh-oh. I came home one day from NIU and there was a phone message that, and I knew it was Quincy Jones' voice right away. It said, Ronnie, where's your ass? I need you now. So I called him right back and he said, Phil Collins wants you to put together a big band for a two and a half month tour of Europe and the United States playing all the major jazz festivals in Europe. So 
I got on the phone. I called Phil and his manager and his musical director and uh, lined up. I mean, he has his own rhythm section that's been with him on his rock tours. The big story that nobody knew about was that Phil was not going to sing on this tour. Phil had had a dream for 32 years, since 1996, when he first heard Buddy Rich, the great drummer, and the Count Basie Orchestra, and Phil being the original drummer in Genesis, and was a great drummer, that he wanted to do a tour sometime in his life where he did not sing a note, but simply had all of his great vocal pop hits, like Up in the Air and Su Su Studio and Mm -hmm. all of the great tunes that he recorded, rearranged for big band. So that during the evening, which we played two hours and 15 minutes without a break, Mm. you would be hearing Phil Collins' tune as Count Basie would play it, Mm. as Woody Herman would play it, as Stan Kenton would play it, as any of the Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, Miles Davis. And it was an absolutely brilliant tour with a brilliant band. Yeah, the unfortunate thing, dare I say, is that you had major mainstream artists such as Phil Collins who went off and did what was outside of the box for them. And I don't know that it was as widely accepted as they were about going in and doing this. I'm thinking of Billy Joel, who did a classical album. I'm thinking of, well, I mean, to to, to an extent, he didn't really do much with it. But, you know, Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, heard about Buddy Rich and, you know, just all of a sudden entrenched himself in all things Buddy Rich and changed his style and the, and the way that he played the drums and everything. And, you know, kind of was all caught up in, in the Buddy Rich uh, way of playing the drums, and everybody's going, I just want to hear Rush music. You know, so Except some of Neil these Pert. things. Neil Peart and Buddy Rich, think of the amount of drums that each one of them came on the stage with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Buddy Rich never had nearly yeah. half of our, you know. Yeah, he was never completely, completely surrounded. By drums. <laughs> yeah. And Neil Peart was one of my son Christopher's favorite, favorite drummers, had all of the Rush albums. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like that you mentioned before about the fact that these professionals, that this was their job. Because what I enjoyed reading your book was hearing the the funny little stories because everybody does just see those musicians as, oh, they're in a symphony, so they're very serious people and they're, they're just there to do a job and they play classical music so they must not have a funny bone in their body. And you had little anecdotes in your book about little things that would go on that you would kind of look at those people and you'd say, oh, they're regular people like me. Absolutely. It was uh, sometimes very difficult, uh, for instance, playing a Mozart symphony sitting on the stage in your white tie and tails, and there's absolute silence in the audience during the slow movement, and you just have this desire to scream all of a sudden and just upset everything. But of course, you never did it. But yeah, there was a lot of stuff that went on, particularly in opera, which is my first love. Yeah. And that's that's the amazing part is that people have this picture of opera and what the participants should be like. And in fact, you're here to say they're normal people. You know, they've they've got good days and bad days and funny bones and things like that. And, you know, unique personalities that you got to see obviously, when it wasn't, you know, in a, in a performance in front of a crowd. If I can tell you one famous story, and I won't name the names, but at the Metropolitan mm-hmm. Opera, there was a big thing going on between one of the leading tenors and sopranos. And uh, the soprano came off stage one night during the performance and said to the general manager, he's pinching my ass. And the manager said, well, go back and bite him on the lip. And she did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but those were things that really went on. <laughs> 
those, those are those are good stories, and I you know, and I encourage people obviously uh, to check out your book so that people can see exactly what we're talking about because you, you did a great job of of detailing those types of stories uh, when when you wrote the book. It was a lot of fun. I am Bruce Wozniak, and joining me today here in the studio is longtime trumpeter and music educator Ron Modell. His autobiography is called Loved Being Here With You and is available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. You can learn more at www.molopublishing.com, which is M-O-L-O-Publishing.com. And if you're in the Sarasota-Bradenton area here in Florida, check out www.mccurdyscomedy.com, as that is where you'll hear shortly that Ron does stand-up comedy. Uh, that website is M-C-C-U-R-D-Y-S, McCurdyscomedy.com. Be sure that you're also checking out www.nowhearthis.biz, and it pains me that on episode 57, I still have to spell H-E-A-R so that you go to nowhearthis.biz properly. Uh, sign up for the e-newsletter there and subscribe to this podcast and tell others about it too. Subscribing is free and it makes it so easy to get the show every week. It will just download automatically when a new episode comes out so you don't even have to go looking for it. If you're a new listener to the show, please do check out some of the prior episodes of Now Hear This Entertainment. We've had a lot of great guests along the way so far. Go ahead and use the social media buttons on nowhearthis.biz to like the Now Hear This page on Facebook and or become a Twitter follower. And please, I would love to hear your feedback about the podcast or maybe even some questions that you would like asked on future episodes. You can post all of that on the Facebook page that I just mentioned or send an email. The email address is on the contact page of nowhearthis.biz. So you alluded to this briefly before, Rana. You know, we should mention that the book did not come together easily. That's that's not a project that you tackle in a, in a weekend or or even a month. And and you mentioned about the the tremendous encouragement that you received uh, from your wife, uh, in addition to others. And and then you ended up going to um, the publisher who put it out. Uh, but that was only after a different one had fallen through. So the whole project was quite an undertaking. Well, my friend uh, Michael Hirsch, who's a recognized author, said to me, it's really hard to write a book. And I had never thought about that, but it actually took six years, Mm. starting by using a cassette tape player, a 45-minute tape on each side, and just talking into it, and then sending it to one of my daughters to transcribe. And that was taking six to eight hours for her to do both sides. Wow. Especially with the musical terms and so forth and the names. And then all of a sudden, somebody, thank goodness, introduced me to the Dragon program on the computer, which you simply talk to the computer and it writes exactly what you're saying. But it was not that easy in the beginning because you have to train the computer to know your voice, Mm -hmm. your rhythm, your diction. And so once I got that going, it really, really helped to to write the book. Uh, If I hadn't been assigned this wonderful, wonderful woman named Laura Iandola, who became my editor, this book would have never happened. It was just incredible the way she was able to put all of it together when she saw all of the material and put it in such a way that chronologically, you're starting out with me at two and a half, at age two and a half, and going all the way up to 
the present day when it was published this past July. And telling those stories, it was so... My youngest son, Joshua, who I talked about in the book, is general manager and editor-in-chief at The Onion of the AV Club, which is one of their most popular things. And the first thing Joshua said to me after he read my book was, Dad, did you have a journal? And I said, no. Everything was right up here, and Mm. it was going back. I'm 80 years old now, so it was going back from 74, 75, you know, back to grade school and high school and naming names and naming places. And uh, so, yes, it was, it was very difficult. And it was, as you said, my wife encouraging me to keep going. And we finally got it done. And uh, one of my ex-students, who has been a very successful trumpeter, when he left me, he went with Woody Herman for a while, then he was with Buddy Rich, and then he opened his own recording studio in Chicago, and was very successful. I think his main account was doing all the McDonald commercials for the European mm. uh, market. But he remained as a great trumpet player. And when he heard I was writing a book, he didn't say anything right away because he hadn't completed his ebook company. Mm. But when I called him the year later and said, the book is done, he said, I really want to publish it for you as an ebook. And then we said, we also want to put it out as a paperback. And that's where it stands now. It's a Kindle or, or a paperback. And uh, the ratings have been just marvelous at Amazon.com. Um, I can't ask for more uh, of the wonderful response that I've had of people saying to me, you know, I feel like you and I are sitting in the living room just chatting when they read the book. Or... I started the book and I couldn't put it down. I put it down at 1.30 this morning when I finished it. <laughs> As Quincy Jones said in his um, liner notes there on the back cover, it's a fun read. You know, and, and it is, you know, um, when I look back on it, my gosh, the things that I said and done, the places that I've been, the people I've been with. Um, can you imagine being asked to give a 45-minute motivational speech in Flims, Switzerland, to the top 115 executives of Motorola Corporation. And all of them, American or English was their second language. Mm. That It was the world executives. That, that was the kind of thing. When I looked back on it, I said, wow. At the time, it was just go out there and do it. Sure, sure. You know, just be careful that you don't use slang. Yeah, yeah. You know, try to stay within the confines of what they would understand. But it was things like that, or or having Dame Joan Sutherland, the great, great opera singer from England, do her American debut in Dallas when I was playing first trumpet with the Dallas Civic Opera. And all of a sudden, at being asked at the end of the opera, since the opera didn't end with a big aria for her, they added one that was solo trumpet and solo soprano. It was from uh, Handel's Let the Bright Seraphim. I mean, those kind of things are monumental in your life, but I didn't think about them at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I honestly, till I wrote about them, I didn't think about them. Yeah, and, and it is a credit to your memory 
that you were able to recount those things as though, as your son said, as though you were just referring back to a journal that, that you kept along the way. So I, this is one time when I wish, and I said this uh, last week on the podcast, uh, that this is one time that I wish that this was a video podcast so people could see that, I mean, you, you look like anybody that you'd see, you know, you will go and walk into the supermarket here in, in the greater Tampa Bay area, and you would never know. And, and, and listeners, when you see Ron's book, you know, here are all these pictures with the Quincy Jones of the world and Phil Collins and, you know, the, the list goes on. I want to say that, uh, I want to say Dizzy Gillespie. And Duke Ellington uh, yeah. and Louis, Louis Armstrong. And, yeah. And Tito Puente, which was my Latin years when I, you know, when Latin music in the late 50s became the craze in New York, I was fortunate to be in the number one Latin band uh, from Cuba. It was Machito and the Afro-Cuban Orchestra. And what an incredible experience that was to be in the Palladium in New York and see four or five hundred people dancing in front of you and playing music that gave me as much of a thrill as when I played the Mahler Fourth Symphony under Sir George Schulte, mm. one of the great conductors mm. of the world. Yeah, and as I said, my point is that to sit here and, and look at Ron as I'm talking to him, you would never know that this is somebody who met the list of people and more that that he just mentioned and again that's a that's a credit to your character that you have been so humble about all this and have obviously recognized it's a blessing and you know that you were able to document it all and and here you are to talk about it today and I also want to mention that Ron uh loved being here with you will soon be available as an audiobook yes we we did that just before I left for Florida when we come down for our winters we are snowbirds and we recorded it as an audio book, and I believe that'll probably be out in about three months. So are you the one telling I recorded it. You are. Yes, the one it's that my voice. The and there's a chapter in which Kathy, we're going to record her doing her chapter, where she made the first and only speech of her life at my retirement dinner. And I had no idea she was the guest speaker. It just said guest speaker. And I was shocked <laughs> because she asked me one time after I came off the stage at the Chicago Jazz Festival... Uh, performing in front of 30,000 people, she said, how can you do that? How can you seem so relaxed? You're just talking to them like they're... And I said, well, you could do it. And she said, I couldn't do it in front of 10 people. <laughs> and there she is in this sky room filled with people. And I, I was shocked out of my mind when it said guest speaker. And the MC said, Kathy Modell. And she did this beautiful, beautiful... Well, you read it. And it, people have told me it brought them to tears. Did you have any... Any hunches as to who the guest speaker was going no, to be? None. None but, but certainly the last person that, that you were oh, going to guess was that it was going to be your wife. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I like that you're saying that when the audiobook does come out, that people will hear you reading it because it means so much more when the person whose book it is is the one telling the story. And by the way, I imagine that all that time that you spent with the Dragon program speaking to the computer, as you say, you have to train it to know your voice. It certainly teaches you to practice good diction. So certainly this will be very well read. <laughs> My uh, publisher, Mark Olson, uh, stopped me many times during that recording to say, finish the word. If you're going to say tweet, get that last T on there, you know. And, and there were really a lot of occasions where you just drop the last letter, not realizing that you're doing it. So yes, it was very, very good lesson. 
Okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated, giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is you can't do it alone. Ultimately, the old it's not what you know, it's who you know is going to come into play, so you need to accept and or seek other people's help get out and make other contacts, collaborate in terms of making music, and so on. Don't be stubborn and let it hold you back from some key opportunities you might be missing out on because you are too closed off about your career and don't want to let anyone in. And that is today's Bruce's Bonus. One recurring theme that I continued to identify as I was reading the book was how you were never bashful about speaking up about taking an audition, even if you were maybe too young or less experienced than other candidates, you would converse and form relationships that others viewed as, you know, with people that others viewed as untouchable. I I, I love that determination because it's something that the listeners who are up-and-coming musicians need to hear so that they don't sell themselves short and sit quietly in the corner somewhere. Well, I, I always just thought, as you have described me, that's the way I felt about these great people that I was having an opportunity to work with and to meet. And uh, just uh, like in my book, when we started the tour with Cornelia Otis Skinner, the, one of the most distinguished women ever in the New York Broadway theater. And I was 17. I was almost 18. I was 17. I had no idea who Cornelia Otis Skinner was. But the very first day of tour, after we did a matinee, and then we had a break and then an evening performance, I just went up to her dressing room door, knocked on the door, and this woman who was like a queen, she opened the door, she was five foot eleven. she was regal, and she had this long gown on, and she looked at me and she said yes, and I, I said, hi, I'm Ronnie Modell, I'm your trumpet player for the next eight and a half months, so I think we ought to get to know each other. <laughs> and she became so fond of me that... Every night, an hour and a half before curtain, she would have me come in, sit in her dressing room while she put her makeup on, and she would discuss with me my day and her day. Yeah, I remember reading that in the book, and and, and there was a part of me as I was reading it, there was another one, and, and you can fill in the details if, if I'm getting them incorrect, but there was another one perhaps around that same time where you were still in your teens and you went for an audition, and you didn't know that these other people were far more qualified than you. And and I think I think what, what we're hearing here is that it's kind of a case of the less you know, the better, because you just go in and be yourself and, and do what you do best, which in your case was play the trumpet. And in the case of the story you just told, it's, well, I'm just going to talk friendly to her because we're a couple of human beings that are going to be working together, so why wouldn't I? Exactly. And uh Very, very few in my lifetime of the great, great people I had the opportunity to work with were not amenable to that. In fact, when I was doing the National Road Company of a show called Here's Love with a great actor of that time named John Payne, that was a musical version of Miracle on 34th Street. And it came through Dallas and I was doing four weeks and I decided one night to invite the musicians who were traveling with the show to come to my apartment after the show and we would have food and drink. And the next night, the trumpet player said to me, would you mind if John Payne came too? He heard about the party and he'd like to come. So, you know, I mean, these people do the show and go back to the hotel and then what? 
Yeah, yeah. So it was wonderful to have John Payne, who was one of my favorite actors of the time, uh, at our apartment. And as I said, 99% of all the people I ever worked with were, were just like that. They're just like you portrayed. They're people. Yeah, and, and working in in the business, you know, I have always told people, say, if I'm taking a client to Nashville or, or to some situation where we know we're going to be in the presence of someone that's extremely accomplished, I will always say, you know, no stargazing. You know, there, there's no room for that. They're going to spot it a mile away. If you want to be accepted into that quote-unquote fraternity, you need to just have a quiet confidence about yourself and be polite and professional and respectful, and, and, and that's how you'll gain their trust and form a relationship with them, not by standing and looking, I can't talk to that person, or doing something ridiculous, take a picture or autograph or, or that type of thing. Absolutely. Uh you know, I, I'm I'm not doing Ron justice when when I read quickly and 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 I just say that that he's uh, a trumpeter and a music educator and, and things of that nature. I, I I'm also trying to to balance out. And granted, we can't give away the entire book in one episode, but I'm trying to balance out not giving away the whole book. So uh, so forgive me that I'm not doing justice to your overwhelmingly impressive resume. I do want you to fill in a little bit about, about NIU, and, and I want you to be the one to introduce that. That's why I'm not, I mean, this this show is about the guests and it's about the audience. It's not about me, so I don't want to sit here and and recite your entire resume. But, but the audience will be thrilled to hear that, although I don't know that it will come as a surprise, what with how much time you spent in the university world over the years, but you are a huge proponent of of music, music education in our country. So go ahead and expand on that for the listeners and, and tell you know the, the NIU story. Well, I came to NIU in 1969, having played, just finished my ninth season with the Dallas Symphony. And the job description was really unusual. It said, professor of classical trumpet and conductor of jazz ensemble. And I should, excuse me, I should clarify for the listeners, if you don't realize, NIU is Northern Illinois University, but... Thank you. Please. Um, So, it was unusual for a player from my years to have touched both sides of the coin. You were, in my time, either trained strictly classically, or you were a commercial jazz player, or lead player, whatever it was. And so, I was bringing both sides of the coin to Northern Illinois University. Uh, I... I titled that chapter something like, uh, well, here, I've got it right here. Let me take a look. But it was very, it it just reminded me immediately of, here, let me look real quick. Here it is. It says, making a baby, creating jazz at NIU. And it really was like making a baby because there had been no jazz played on that campus ever. So I was the first one. And being in DeKalb, Illinois, population around 35,000, I think, and most noted for barbed wire and corn, <laughs> DeKalb bag corn, uh, I had to really start beating the bushes down. So the first thing I did was call the publisher of Downbeat Magazine, which is the musician's Bible, the jazz musician's Bible, and say, what high school district has the best jazz high schools? And he told me District 214 which had about five or six schools, and I immediately set up where we could take our band to their high school and play an all-school assembly. And I used it to educate them by playing the first half of the program, all of our forefathers of jazz. I'd play Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Stan Kenton. Mm -hmm. But I always ended 
by playing their music. Wow. Now, if you think about it, in wow. the early 70s, I was doing a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in Chicago. No kidding. And I was lucky to have a vocalist that could do David Clayton Thomas, you know, wow. and could do the Chicago things. So what we were doing was nurturing an audience for the future by playing Basie Ellington. And maybe they didn't really think that was great, but they heard it. Now, when you say our band, we brought our band to the high school. The NIU Jazz Ensemble. Okay, okay. The, the, that, had ju- that had just started. It was the first year. And uh, I knew if we didn't get out, while I was playing in the Dallas Symphony, I was an adjunct professor at Southern Methodist University and associate marching band director. And one of the vice presidents at SMU told me something that really stuck with me. He said, when you go to Northern Illinois University, you can have the greatest product in the world, but if nobody knows about it, you're going to be sitting there with your product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So my initial thing was to immediately get out into the schools, let everybody know there is now jazz being played and taught at Northern Illinois University. And it didn't take about three or four years that we started to draw all of the talent from the big schools in Illinois, because most of our bands were almost 100% Illinois kids, and that was great. Yeah, that's that's a great recruiting strategy, because you could send out a brochure or a letter and tell people, and, and that's not going to get anyone there, but to sit in their own high school, where they're coming to every day anyways, and see this band on the stage and say, that could be me. That was, that was a, a stroke of genius. You to- hit it. You hit it right on the head because I heard that from so many students who came that said, you know, I was sitting in the assembly and I thought, boy, I want to be in that band. And, you know, the other thing I used to do was at the end of the assembly, I found out before I got to the school who were the five most popular students and who were the five most popular teachers. And we would have them come up on the stage and we'd have a contest. Roger Pemberton, the great lead alto player with The Tonight Show, had written an arrangement of the top eight or ten TV shows. And at that time, it would have been Andy Griffith and Gunsmoke and all of that. Mm -hmm. And we'd play, and the audience would have to stay quiet while each one of the groups of five would guess where the themes were from. But it just made it so that it was fun. The kids had fun. And they thought, you know, maybe in the future, I'd like to go to another one of these concerts. Well, and the other side of that, too, is that it it was also a smart move because... You know, some people would probably think of it as, oh, we have to go to an assembly or they would hear specifically what the assembly was. And they would think, well, I'm not interested in that only because they didn't know what they were going for. And then to have some fun with it the way that you did and make it interactive, all of a sudden, you know, that's that's where it just takes on a, a totally different tone. And they're able to to form a, a more educated opinion and say, you know what, this is actually this is actually pretty good. I, I want you to continue though, because I mentioned about what a huge advocate you are for music education in our country. I know we've spoken about this on on a handful of episodes. For for whatever reason, only episode nine uh, with uh, singer songwriter Melissa Brethauer, she she talked about how she is always very vocal about supporting the arts and and many times she'll end a performance and you know thank you very much support the arts and and you're i mean obviously people are hearing how the groundwork was laid for you smu niu it stands to reason but i I still want to give you the opportunity anyways to uh to to voice your 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 thoughts on the whole subject because obviously unfortunately one of the things that we do talk about is how Arts and music are one of the first things to be cut in the schools today. That's exactly right. And uh, 
When I was sitting with Quincy Jones one day interviewing him for the Instrumentalist magazine, came up with a terrific statistic. 80% of kids all over the United States that are involved in a band program, marching band, concert band, whatever, 80% have never, ever been involved in a gang or any sort of activity. Wow. In other wow. words, that's fantastic. Their gang was the band room. Yeah. That's where they came and congregated. That's where they they actually came to love each other as people, making music together. And the big uh, mathematics people have said music and math are so completely together. But the most important thing is if you think about music and how important it is, I was asked one year to write an article for a big music educator magazine. I think it was called The School Musician. And it just so happened I had read Time magazine that week, and it showed that all 535 members of Congress, every one of them, had said they had had a musical experience Mm. during their school years. Wow, that's amazing. It was. And they were either in choir, marching band, or some, some form of music. And so my whole article was, if it was so great for you, (laughs) <laughs> got to fund it. You know, and that's been the problem, as you pointed yeah. out. Uh, music and art is usually the first thing to go. If we take that away from our kids, if we take that away from our public, we're going back in the jungle. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I like that point that, that you said that you wrote about, because it's almost it's almost like saying touche. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I am Bruce Warzniak, and joining me today here in the studio is longtime trumpeter and music educator Ron Modell. His autobiography is called Loved Being Here With You and is available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. You can learn more at www.molopublishing.com which is M-O-L-O-Publishing.com. We were talking about the audiobook soon being available. You can actually pre-order that now at molopublishing.com slash podcast. Uh, plus, as I mentioned before, if you're in the Sarasota-Bradenton area here in Florida, check out www.mccurdyscomedy.com as that is where you will hear shortly that Ron does stand-up comedy. That website is MCC. U-R-D-Y-S, McCurdyscomedy.com. Be sure that you're also checking out www.nowhearthis.biz, H-E-A-R, and sign up for the e-newsletter there and subscribe to this podcast. Tell others about it too, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, relatives. Subscribing is free, and it makes it so easy to get the show every week. It'll just download automatically when a new episode comes out, so you don't even have to go looking for it. If you are a new listener to the show, we are up to episode 57, so please do check out some of the prior episodes of Now Hear This Entertainment. We've had a lot of great guests along the way so far. Go ahead and use the social media buttons on nowhearthis.biz to like the Now Hear This page on Facebook and or become a Twitter follower And please, I'm sincere, I will always invite you to give your feedback about the podcast, maybe even some questions you would like me to ask to guests on future episodes. You can post all that on the Facebook page that I just mentioned or send an email. The email address is on the contact page of nowhearthis.biz. Ron, you you gave away your age, so I don't think it's inappropriate for me to refer you you as a senior, uh, as, as a senior who accomplished all in music that you did and played with some of the biggest names, uh, quite frankly, do, do you think that 
the music of today is just garbage or, or, or in more polite terms, is it just not your cup of tea or maybe do you like some of it? Well, I like some of it, yes, but I, I, I think I could illustrate to you that uh, everything that goes around comes around. My first year at Northern in 1969, after we'd gotten the band going, one of the students came up to me and said, Lawrence Welk sucks. Wow. And I said to him, you know something? If you tell me that you really don't enjoy his music, I can respect you for that. But don't tell me that his music sucks, because Lawrence Welk plays that music better than anybody else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let me tell you something that will really shock you. There are millions and millions of people who would rather hear Lawrence Welk's music than the music you like. Yeah, yeah, well said. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm a great fan of music. I, I love uh, that old saying, music is either good or bad. It's good country western or bad country western. It's good rap or it's bad rap. Mm -hmm. Quincy Jones has told me on a number of occasions Rappers are pretty darn good musicians. They're really excellent. You know, he doesn't like some of the lyrics. He said sure, that in the sure. interview. And the messages that go across. But, you know, there's room for everybody. That's the most wonderful part of music. There's room for everybody. So do you, for instance, again, knowing what a monumental decision it was and a challenge for you to put down the trumpet permanently, do you attend, I'll say, for... for be, only because I'm in this area, the Clearwater Jazz Holiday, for example. Do you attend jazz festivals? Uh, and, and if so, uh, do you twitch <laughs> because you, you know you, you think, boy, I'd sure like to play with these folks? Or, oh or? no, no, I've ne never had that really, and it's shocking to some people that said, "Don't you miss it?" No, I, I don't miss it. I I just sit and enjoy uh, going to the Sarasota Orchestra, which is a marvelous symphony orchestra. The Sarasota Opera Company is magnificent. Uh, Kathy and I just purchased tickets today to go see Flashdance at Van Wezel Auditorium mm -hmm. in April. Mm -hmm. And we've been active in going to Neal Auditorium to see different productions. So, no, I, I, I just think it's time that you sit back and relax and now have the wonderful opportunity to enjoy the music that you really enjoy. But after all those years, can you, can you honestly tell me that you don't sit there and critique as you're listening and think, oh, this was a little off, or this person here, I could tell they were flat, or this person had, had this... Yes, I, I do that. Yes, mm -hmm. because it's a reflex. Yeah. I mean, if I hear somebody playing out of tune, or somebody articulating a certain way that... Uh, there was a very famous band we heard very recently that the leader decided to articulate differently what had been standard for 70 years, and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just thought, wow, you know, but... You know, they call that artistic license. And, you know, sometimes it goes a little overboard. <laughs> well, I have, uh, on a different subject, been briefly alluding to the fact that you do comedy now. And, and I found it interesting when you told me in the lead up to today's show that you feel that, quote, joke telling is a dying art, unquote. Well, the, the owner of the club, Les McCurdy, when he introduces me, says exactly that. There, there are no comics around. I think there's one guy he mentioned to me that uh, actually made it as a headliner, because I'm not a headliner. I'm a middle guest comedian. But the art of telling a joke is completely out of today's comedians that we see at the comedy clubs or that you see on television. And it's fine. It just, you know, it, it went through its period, and now there's a different approach to comedy. I mean, some of these guys... 
Absolutely. My wife and I happened to be absolutely crazy about a man named John DeCrosta. John DeCrosta was just at McCurdy's a few weeks ago. I have worked with him 30 times. I've opened for him 30 times. I know exactly what he's going to say and how he's going to say it. And Kathy and I still break up. So it's that kind of, and yeah. he, he doesn't tell jokes. He's a real uh, Robin Williams type of comedian. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. looks like Nathan Lane. So ah. if you put that together, <laughs> it's hysteria. But no, it's, uh, joke telling is just something of timing and uh, dialects um, and the kind of material that you can use in the comedy club. It doesn't have to be vulgar. I've never told a vulgar joke in my life. But I can use the words that, you know, other people use, and it's a totally different approach. Well, as people will see when they read your book, you always had a great sense of humor, even from a very young age. But tell the listeners what it was that made you decide, okay, I'm going to take this to the point where I'm actually going to do stand-up comedy instead of just be known as someone who has a good sense of humor. It was when we went our first time to McCurdy's Comedy Club in Sarasota after we had purchased a home in Bradenton. Kathy and I had always been, like a lot of people, a little afraid to go to a comedy club because we heard it was all vulgar and, you know, not the kind of humor that we enjoy. But on our 10th wedding anniversary, we we were in Lake Tahoe and went to the comedy club there and heard three comedians that were absolutely marvelous. So when we got to Bradenton... We found out about McCurdy's Comedy Theater, and we went, and after a couple of weeks, I was standing with Les McCurdy, and I told him a joke. And he said, we have open mic on Wednesday and Thursday. I want you to come in next Wednesday or Thursday and do five minutes and see how you feel about being on the stage and how the audience reacts. Well, I did my five minutes, and that night he hired me to become a regular. Wow, wow. And now I do 15 to 30 minutes. And and I, I I'm I'm picturing that when you mentioned coming off stage after having performed in front of thirty thousand people and your wife saying to you how did you do that I imagine that going up there and doing those five minutes was probably you know in your opinion what's the big deal exactly yeah, yeah. you got it right on the head well if everything that we've been talking about isn't enough you have also undergone four angioplasties yes. so obviously your health is good since since you're still so active. Well, you know, I try to watch uh, my weight. I've, I've been able to take off some weight, which, of course, all the doctors tell you they want you to do. Um, I told them that when I first arrived in DeKalb, I found a wonderful doctor who told me that I was not overweight. He said, according to his chart, I was too short. I should be <laughs> eight foot two for what I weigh. <laughs> but I, I'm coming down nicely. I, I just recently had a knee replacement, so I took off 13 pounds during that couple of months. And uh, I I just try to uh, walk a little every day, play golf two or three times a week. And uh, my wife certainly watches me and keeps me on the straight and narrow. So so the McCurdy's, the open mic story, uh, I want to kind of close the gap here and give people the timeline because you mentioned that you put down your trumpet in 1996. 2007. I'm sorry, 2007. And so McCurdy's, this didn't happen in 2008. No, it happened actually in 2006. In 2006? Yeah, it was a year before I put down the trumpet. And um, then, as I said, Les said to me, I'd like you to do a 
10 minute slot on next week's show or next month's show. And then all of a sudden it was 15 minutes and then it was 20, then it was 25. And I have now become the guest comedian and will appear like I did for a week in February. I was at the club. We did seven shows in five nights with a wonderful young comedian named Joshua Sneed. And I'll probably go back in April and do another stint with one of the comedians who's scheduled to be at McCurdy's. But I wonder, once you knew you were putting the trumpet down for good, was there a sense of, I'm at peace with my decision, but what am I going to do with myself now? That certain- was more Kathy's concern. Uh-huh. Kathy said, I can't be your audience. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to find a new audience. And that was solved with the comedy club. Well, we're, we're out of time, but, but Ron, this to me is a key moment in the show because I would love to hear from you what advice you want to leave the listeners with. And, and I'm talking about particularly the listeners who are aspiring musicians that are trying to elevate their career. Well, I think you have to love something. It, it was the same thing that I said to the top 115 world executives of Motorola Corporation when I spoke to them on motivation. My whole speech was about, you have to love what you're doing. You have to be devoted and dedicated to what you're doing. And you have to have the mindset that you're going to be able to sustain the type of energy and the type of desire that you want to have at least a shot at doing what you would love to do for the rest of your life. You know, Studs Terkel wrote a book many years ago called Working, 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 where he went all over the country and just simply asked people in different occupations, are you happy getting up in the morning to go to work? An astounding 76% said no. I was lucky. I was in that other 24%. When I got up every morning, I couldn't wait to go to work, whether it was with the Dallas Symphony or with Phil Collins or with Quincy Jones or, or Northern Illinois University. I think that's where the whole mindset has to be and if parents you know feel that they can support their child in that effort to become whatever it is that thrills them that makes them alive they have to give them full support outstanding well uh you know the time has has flown by on this unfortunately we we could have talked so long that we could have had a a ron modell part two but it, but it, you know, I guess that's where I'm going to be the promoter that I am, and, and tell people it's all the more reason for them to to purchase your book because there's so much. I mean, we we barely even scrape the surface of it. But thank you ever so much. I've really enjoyed it, and I'm I'm, I'm disappointed that we're out of time. It was my pleasure. I will close, as always, by formally thanking my guest. Today, we had heard from longtime trumpeter, music educator, and now funny man, Ron Modell. His autobiography is called Loved Being Here With You and is available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. You can learn more at www.molopublishing.com, which is M-O-L-O publishing.com. We were talking about the audiobook soon being available. Remember that you can actually pre-order that now at molopublishing.com slash podcast. Plus, if you're in the Sarasota-Bradenton area here in Florida, check out www.mccurdyscomedy.com as that is, as you've heard Ron talking about, where you will be able to see him do stand-up comedy in person That website, again, is mccurdys, 
mccurdyscomedy.com. Don't forget to visit www.nowhearthis.biz and sign up for the email newsletter there by simply putting in your email address. That's it, just one field to complete. And of course, please do subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends about it. Give us a nice review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio too, hopefully accompanied by a five-star rating. That really does help the show a lot. If you are listening on SoundCloud, remember that you can like and share episodes there. And you can, you can also follow on SoundCloud, which is just like subscribing. As I have invited listeners before, let's get your feedback on the show too. Post your comments or questions on the Now Hear This Facebook page. There are links to it and Twitter and even the Now Hear This official YouTube channel on nowhearthis.biz or send us an email. The email address is on the contact page of nowhearthis.biz, as they say in Canada. We have been recording this show at the great facilities at Crystal Blue Sound Studios near Tampa, Florida. Check them out online at www.cbpro.net. That's CB as in crystal blue. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment.